Heaps Good Politics. Come on and put us to the test. Make a change in the nick of time. Forget the rest of... Heaps Good Politics. Hello listeners, welcome back to our third and final episode before oh, the South final. Australian election. Don't worry, not 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 last ever. Just yeah. kidding, we'll get to that later. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> so, today I'm joined by Seb, who is still in Perth. Yes, I am. It's very sunny. I've just Are finished... Are you postal voting, Seb? I, I, what's, what's the plan? That is a great question. Well, I can tell you... Do you, you even live here? I, I, I used to. I mean, I've just finished peeling That's my... enough from you. And also, Roger. Hello, everyone. Um... Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you'd think episode three'd be getting better at that. I should think I'd know how to introduce myself, yeah. <laughs> so, today is our extended episode extraordinaire. Mm. Extravaganza. But before we get on to extravaganza, my apologies. Um, before we get on to that, Seb, what did we talk about last week? Or, or by last week, I mean probably three days ago. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what the schedule is at this point? <laughs> so... Yesterday slash a week ago slash last time we spoke about health. We looked at changes that SA went through in transforming health. We looked through uh, differences that the parties had in regards to the future of health. We looked at Maud's favourite topic, the clinical data analytics unit. Um, <laughs> and we talked about what's likely to be popular in the future. But more importantly, where are we going from here, Maud? Yeah. So today in our double episode, we are talking energy. Come on, more energy. Uh, just as a visual description, we're actually watching Arnold Schwarzenegger and many other enormous Come on, men. one more time. <laughs> yeah, let's stop that now. Um, so we're talking energy and the environment. Um, now, this is a, a real hot topic, and I guess, excuse the pun, um, that is because <laughs> power prices are so high in South Australia. The Premier recently said that he thinks this election is actually a referendum on energy. So I guess a good place to start is if we look a little bit at um, the state of policy in South Australia. So here's Dan Spencer from Solar Citizens, which is an advocacy body in South Australia, explaining where we're at. Well, South Australia is really a leader in um, renewable energy, not just in Australia, but globally. And challenge has been how we store that um, power so we can get uh, 24-hour power from uh, abundant sun and wind. And um, in the last you know, six or so months, we've really seen a lot of movement in that space, which is very exciting. And I think the big challenge this election is uh, whether we're going to um, have politicians elected who are keen to continue that leadership or if they uh, want to hold it back. And that's one of the big choices facing South Australians. So, yeah, South Australia is definitely a leader in the country in terms of renewable energy. We're the largest producer of wind energy in Australia, and we now own the world's uh, largest lithium-ion battery for storage of renewable energy, thanks to old mate Elon. So we, we definitely, um, we're definitely sort of pushing... Uh, uh, in that regard, but we do still have um, some reliance on non-renewable energy as well in the form of gas, and obviously the power prices are, are getting to be a big issue for the state as well. So Seb, energy is pretty complicated. Are you able to run us through how our state's energy market actually works? Uh, well, I'll give it a shot. So essentially what you need to know is the energy from South Australia is basically split between two sources. We've got renewables on one hand and uh, gas on the other. So on the average day, our state's probably about powered 50% from renewable energy. Okay? 
Separately, we've got an interconnector with Victoria that connects us to the national energy grid, and the gas is produced from Torrens Island. And then there's a separate body called AMO, or the Australian Energy Market Operator, which regulates how energy is uh, dispatched between the sources, and they make decisions on when certain generators come online. So they're like the, the grandmother of, of the energy industry, really. Uh, yes, the queen the, bee. With the babushka dolls. It all makes total sense to me. <laughs> so that is a very brief overview. Obviously, you can go and do some more reading if you're particularly interested. And I guess it's important to note that the, there is um, multiple sources for the gas, but um, Torrens Island is one of the main ones. Power prices are probably one of the biggest things um, that people are wanting answers for in this election. Here's some of our guests from previous episodes talking about um, how it's affecting business and how it's affecting people in South Australia. Here's Ross Womersley, the CEO of SACOS. In the area of energy costs, electricity costs in South Australia, we know over the last 10 years they've gone up by about 125%. But general inflation, or general CPI, has only gone up by 25%. And so in that context, when the costs associated with a particular area grow much faster than general CPI, then it usually means that it's getting ahead of income. And of course, if you're falling behind, if you're not getting more income that makes up sufficiently for the increases in the costs, then, in fact, you fall further and further behind. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing a really disheartening, um, you know, impact of, of power prices, and that they are just horrendous increases. And it's not just uh, households or, or share houses where you have to share the energy bill that are frustrated by this. Um, are you frustrated in your share house, oh Roger? Oh, my God. Sometimes you have a housemate who has undiagnosed hyperthyroidism <laughs> because I'm turning the air conditioner on. And, you know, that's going straight to the power bill. But yeah. anyway, it's not just uh, share houses that are struggling with the high power prices. Uh, it's it's also bad for businesses who um, who pay these huge power prices because of the businesses they run. So here's Nigel McBride of Business SA talking about the effect that high power prices have on small businesses. Well, the policy settings that our members are concerned about are obviously power prices and continuity. I mean, it, it all starts there. It's very hard to build business confidence when some of our members have faced um, power pricing. We, we had a little supermarket out in the country, a lady who ran two supermarkets. Her power bill increased in one year by $150,000. And she said, I, I just, that I don't have the margin to cover that. So I guess the obvious question is, why are power prices so goddamn high in South oh. Australia? That is the question on everybody's lips. Suddenly on mine. And I mean, if there, if it was an easy answer, I think we would have fixed it by now. So there are multiple. And we'd have a shorter podcast. <laughs> so there are multiple reasons for it. Um, I guess one of the reasons is that the coal power station in Port Augusta shut in 2016. It was well and truly past its due date, um, but that certainly um, did not make things easier. That sort of pushed us more towards a reliance on gas and the interconnector with Victoria. Um, which are sort of more expensive uh, sources of energy. I recently read this analogy that I think speaks to me because, you know, I'm a little bit simple, and it it compared energy with with apples. So not apples and oranges, energy and apples. 
And basically the analogy was that if you have, if you need a hundred apples of energy, the common um, form of energy. Why do you need a hundred apples? <laughs> so let's say you need a hundred apples. Um, and the first 99 are from within South Australia. Let's say they're cheap renewables um, and they're easy to source and they're 10 cents a pop. Cheap as, oh, but bargain. the last apple, which we desperately need to turn on, you know, our, our houses or, or shops or whatever, we might have to get from gas or we might have to get from Victoria. And because that's probably being looked for at peak times, um, that apple might cost, you know, $10, which is, what's the maths, Roger? What's that? A thousand times the price? Oh, yes. It's And it's so overall, more. that makes, Isn't that it makes, um, nah. oh yeah, hundred. Hundred times the price, um, and that makes um, the overall, you know, bill much more unaffordable. Yeah. And imported apples are less nice. They usually have that little waxy outside. Exactly, it's not... probably GM. Yeah, it's probably yeah. got a worm in it. Nobody likes the wax. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, one of the other problems is that there seems to be a bit of a monopoly on our um, generation of energy in South Australia. So, since we're not experts, here's Dan Spencer again explaining a little bit more about how all that worked. One of the big factors was uh, it was the privatisation of um, all of our electricity assets. So, um, that set up a monopoly power network provider. It meant that um, you know companies like AGL now not only um, dominate the retail market, but they also own a lot of the electricity generation so you know well within the rules they're able to um, effectively game the system and push up um, at, at key times which means that everyone pays more so Roger yeah what happened to make everyone all of a sudden care about energy yeah so I mean this all came to a head towards the end of 2016 um, it was a where great we year. had it was a great year, uh, but unfortunately, there was an unfortunate thing that happened where the whole state had a blackout and we went dark. Ran out of apples. Yeah, yeah, no apples for anyone. There were no apples for anyone. And so we had a massive storm, and safety set settings were dysfunctional during the time, and suddenly all, all black. What were you guys doing during the blackout? I was actually on placement at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, yeah. and it was the perfect excuse to leave early. Yeah. And I went and drank <laughs> like a, lot of, a lot of wine and took a lot of pictures of black blackness in Adelaide, making a joke about how we were finally a hundred percent renewable. <laughs> <laughs> what I, what I, I mean that was I mean that was good because Adelaide, you know, looked quite post-apocalyptic. Although that's you know quite normal for Adelaide, <laughs> not much change there. I mean, the other big thing to come out was um, although a lot of hospitals had backup generators, nobody had bothered doing maintenance on them, uh, so a lot of them conked out. And one of the issues was uh, a an IVF clinic which had been storing uh, a lot of uh, sperm and frozen eggs. Actually, that had uh, all the sperm and so on defrost, uh, which was both expensive in terms of uh, you know direct harm to everybody had to look at the site afterwards and to the people who lost yeah. the uh, biological goods. So why did the blackout happen, Maud? What, what was the reason for it? Well, as with any big sort of um, catastrophe, everyone, every man and his dog and, and women too had their theories. <laughs> but after a big report by the Australian Energy Market Operator, um, it was concluded that it was a freak weather event and that in actual fact, some of the protective mechanisms that were inbuilt to generators all around South Australia didn't, um, were, were actually to the detriment of the grid. So they um, switched everything off in order to remain safe, 
but didn't sort of come back online in time to um, sustain the energy needs of the state. So here's Dan Spencer um, explaining more eloquently why it happened. I think the blackout uh, a year or so ago in September when the whole state went black, um, I don't think anyone could have stopped that. That was uh, a freak storm, a freak weather event that brought down power lines and um, the national energy operator wasn't aware of some safety settings on wind turbines and uh, when when these uh, when the poles and wires went down that triggered these safety settings causing them to go offline and the state went black so it was nothing to do with the source of energy it really wasn't something that was in the state government's control um, it was a combination of bad management from the national energy market operator um, and a freak weather event um, that caused it. I guess one thing to mention, though, is that uh, immediately after the storm, a lot of people, including um, national political figures, um, including old mate Nick Xenophon, who, who, in the words of Jay Weatherall, practically strained a hamstring trying to get to a TV station in time. Blame. You have to do the stretches, Roger. You have to do well, the stretches yeah. before the press conference. I, mean, I don't know how old he is, but... Yeah. Uh, he... he um, they were all very quick to to sort of question whether it could have been South Australia's over-reliance on renewable energy that caused this blackout. People sort of shedding doubt on whether our reliance on solar and wind was was part of the reason as to why that happened. Pretty much as, as Dan Spencer just covered before, it wasn't um, because of that and uh, that wasn't really a factor, but it did definitely bring renewables back into the limelight. Mm, for sure. So... Um... Seb, after that, we had a pretty interesting press conference involving the Premier Jay Weatherall and Federal Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg. And um, it didn't go probably as planned. Seb, what happened? So this was the matchup of the century. This was truly, uh, you know, look out Muhammad Ali, Jay Weatherall is in now. Essentially, what happened was, uh, at the time, SA was a leader in renewable energy. So we'd had um, a renew renewable energy target of about 50% that we'd managed to reach about 10 years ahead of schedule. In contrast to this, the federal government, which is a liberal government, had kind of been moving away from uh, trying to take progressive action on uh, renewable energy. So there was a bit of tension between the state government and the federal government because of this. And um, what happened was um, Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg made the foolish error of coming down to South Australia uh, soon after Should the blackout to have a chat about this. <laughs> Should never do it. You know, it's a he didn't have any security. I looked at the <laughs> um, And what we're going to play now is um, the infamous uh, shirt fronting incident where Weatherall thought he'd confront him about it. Let's I've got to say, it is a little galling to be standing here next to a man that's been standing up with his Prime Minister, bagging South Australia at every step of the way over the last six months to be standing here on this occasion, him suggesting that we want to work together. It is a disgrace the way in which your government has treated our state is the most anti-South Australian government we have seen from a Commonwealth government in living memory. What we have is a national energy market that is broken. We had a Prime Minister that came in here to this state during the course of the last federal election campaign celebrating our leadership in relation to renewable energy and then taking credit for it through his own renewable energy target. And for you to then turn around within a few short months when there's a blackout and point the finger at South Australia, 
for the fact that our leadership in renewable energy was the cause of that problem is an absolute disgrace. And you'd be standing here, sitting next to us, trying to take credit for some small scheme which goes nowhere near fixing the size and the extent of the problems that have been created in this state is an outrage. Let's have a listen. Whoa, Whoa Jesus! Christ, Lord just fell up. Roger, can you help Lord get back up? Yeah, you're right then, Lord. I need yeah. some eyes for my own personal burden. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, obviously, as you can tell, that that was that was quite a, a quite a bashing, a verbal bashing. I, I think Josh Frydenberg was placed in an induced coma afterwards. It is worth noting that that South Australia, in its leadership with renewable energy, is sort of uh, struggling against the federal government and their uh, lack of. Uh, interest in renewable energy and and the sort of pushback that they're getting and there is a bit of uh, animosity between the the federal government and the state government in regards to this uh this is environment minister ian hunter talking a little bit about the struggles that they're having with uh, negotiating with the federal government so whatever our federal government of the day if you're you know california you have a different view about climate change to Donald Trump, and if you're South Australia, you have a different view about climate change to Malcolm Turnbull. Although very close, Malcolm Turnbull had a very similar view to us once, but he, he doesn't seem to any longer. Mm. Um, and so we drive a lot of our coordination action around the world. It's important for our state to lead here because we want to grasp the benefits that accrue from being early movers. Um, if we don't do this, all the benefits would flow to New South Wales or Queensland or somewhere else, or even offshore completely. Okay, so, so. when shit hits the fan, who are you going to call? Elon Musk. Probably second after Ghostbusters. Oh, uh, you can try Ghostbusters <laughs> first, but then <laughs> And their phone up. might be broken. So yeah. I, I think they're they using the same number, phone. aren't they? <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, they work out of the same office. <laughs> but yeah, it was certainly Elon Musk to the rescue, and after the whole furor about the um, blackout, uh, we got a tweet from Elon Musk saying that he would fix up our energy problem within 100 days or give it to us for free. So so he waltzed in, and, and what did he do? Odd. So he, uh, I mean, I guess it depends who you ask, but, but for a lot of people, he really did come to the rescue. So we now have a, um, a battery, which essentially is supposed to tide us over for those peak times when we just can't quite get that hundredth apple of energy. So, Roger, the other thing that um, that Elon Musk has been involved with since is this idea of a virtual power network. You haven't explained how that works? Yeah, sure. So, um, basically, this is a, a, a new announcement that's come out quite recently uh, by the Weatherall government, although uh, Mark Pennell from the Greens did say that they had the idea first but didn't have Elon Musk. Um, basically, it would involve 50,000 homes with solar panels, basically supplying 20% of the state's needs for um, energy policy. The total cost is $800 million, but uh, $30 million of that is coming from the government and the rest will be coming from investors. Uh, so it's sort of a joint public and private uh, operation. But Maud, isn't it just you know, quite a small battery? It's in essence, just a glorified AA battery. All it does is 60,000 homes for an hour in a population um, as big as, you know, South Australia's. Why does that actually matter? That's a really good question, Seb, and that's something that a lot of people have been asking, in particular the, the opposition. Um, but here's Dan Spencer explaining why that is not necessarily the point of the battery, and in actual fact it solves a problem that we've been trying to fix for some time. Yeah, so it actually has a big impact. Um, so South Australia is currently sitting at about 50% renewable energy. And so, you know, 
when you get to um, peak demand at those hot times in the day, um, you know, 100 megawatts like the battery, that actually makes a real difference. So when, when demand's starting to get higher and higher, having that little bit more renewable generation with storage, which is cheaper, undercutting the gas companies is really positive. You know, there's all this talk from the federal government about, oh, big bananas and, oh, the battery only lasts a certain amount of time. But that's that's kind of not the point. Uh, the point of the battery is to respond really quickly um, to keep the grid secure. And here's Stephen Knoll from the Liberal leadership team talking a little bit about what they think about the Labor's energy policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've sent a very clear signal about where we want the grid to end up and also putting in place actions that deliver a complete uh, solution for our grid uh, as opposed to solutions that are designed to make good headlines uh, but don't actually provide holistic solutions to the problem. And this battery uh, up in Jamestown is one example where uh, for $50 million we get something that will be able to power South Australia for a total of six minutes. That's not uh, a complete solution. Uh, that is something designed by a government to make it look like it's solving the problem that it created in the first place. So I guess um, one of the criticisms of this whole Musk thing is that he, you know, there's the argument that maybe he got this because of his, you know, tweet and because of Mm. his celebrity status, that a lot of other companies feel as though they've missed out. There was no formal tender process. Definitely a bit of a PR op. Like if you look at Jay Weatherall's Facebook page, who's in the cover photo. Exactly. Or, you know, when we went to his office and there's a photo of Muskie and Weatherall in front of wife and kids. Yeah, I really (laughs) like the idea of different federal politicians just trying to grab like a billionaire celebrity <laughs> to try and boost that polling. So I think it's a bit of a hard one because there is a role for the formal tender process and I think it's unfortunate that um, a lot of maybe smaller local businesses have missed out. But also um, the turnaround time has been extremely quick and would that have happened without someone like Elon Musk at the helm? Um, I guess the other thing that has really been a game changer is um, the concentrated solar thermal plant that is going to be built in Port Augusta. This is has been sort of in the pipeline for a long time and it's recently been announced that it is actually going to go ahead. And um, here's Dan Spencer again explaining why it's so important and why it's a win for the community um, all through South Australia, but particularly in Port Augusta. Yeah, so for a long time, the Port Augusta community and people across the state were um, advocating for a big solar thermal plant to be built in Port Augusta. And so it's a bit different to solar panels that you might see on people's roofs. It's a, it's a big tower surrounded by a field of mirrors. And um, what they do is it shines, shines the sun's light to the top of this tower, heating up molten salt that is then stored and used to generate electricity. So you can have solar power day and night. Um, And excitingly, that's now been um, announced. And what that's going to mean is it's going to mean more more clean energy for all South Australians. It's going to mean more reliable electricity, um, but it's also going to push prices down. Now, Seb, you were living in Port Augusta last year. I was. I was the gateway to the outback, the (laughs) sunniest part of SA, where it never rains and everybody (laughs) smiles. (laughs) All right. It was just a really big thing in Port Augusta. So we had, uh, you know, everybody was signing petitions at the time. You'd go for your coffee and there'd be a big uh, clipboard right next to the um, FPOS to sign about it. They actually had a really big uh, after party when uh, the government finally committed to it. Um, I was in Adelaide, but I understand it was quite fun. So all this renewable talk, 
we're not all renewable um, as a state yet. We still are quite reliant on gas. Can you t- talk a little bit about that, Maud? Yeah, so um, I guess another one of the criticisms of the Labor government um, is that they are, whilst, you know, tooting their own horn for being pro-renewables, they've actually spent a lot of their budget on gas exploration. So of their $550 million that um, for the energy plan that they announced, as much as $360 million is being spent on um, gas exploration and, and backup generators. Here's Dan Spencer talking about gas usage in South Australia and, and the role of backup generators. Um, the state-owned power plant, it's an interesting one because, yes, it is a gas power station, but it's actually only there to operate when everything else fails, so it's not actually operating. So it's there as a backup um, system, and, you know, that was done in a time of crisis, and, you know, we, we can understand why that was part of the plan. The part of the plan we don't really like um, is they've also given $48 million now to um, extract new gas, and that's leading to things like gas exploration in the southeast, which is, you know, one of our prime agricultural wine-growing regions and, and things like that. So we definitely we definitely don't support. So... Now, the Liberal Party have actually promised a moratorium, um, which basically means a, a no-go zone um, for unconventional gas exploration in the southeast. And, and this is a good thing, but it does also fall short because unconventional gas is just one type of gas. And I think it's an interesting thing because to the average person, maybe that, that sounds quite comprehensive, but it does leave a little bit of a loophole for um, other gas exploration mm-hmm. We did try and reach out to SA Best and also to the Labor Energy Minister, Tom Coutson-Tonis. However, um, we didn't really get any bites on that line, so we've gone fishing elsewhere. (laughs) 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 So the state does have its own renewable energy target that it sets itself to meet. Um, At the moment, it's 50%, which we've essentially met, where I think at the moment it's just 49.8% around. Jay Weatherall would like to increase that target to 75%, and that's one of the promises he's made for the upcoming election. However, Stephen Marshall and the Liberals um, have said that they actually want to uh, do away with this state energy target and instead just meet the targets that the federal government sets, which is, I guess, a bit surprising in, in a state that is quite pro-renewable energy. Stephen Knoll says that this is more to do with the reliability issue um, in terms of renewable energy and doesn't want to go too hard too fast. We've, we've said that because uh, in South Australia, we have gone headlong into these unreliable power sources beyond what our system can cope with. Uh, and the renewable energy target has been something that's driven the government uh, through its ideological approach towards this end, as opposed to a practical approach that says, OK, we want to move down this renewable path, but at what point, uh, to, to what extent can we actually get this done? To what extent can we incorporate uh, renewable energy into the grid without it affecting the broader grid uh, as it exists? So scrapping the renewable energy target for us is about sending a signal to the market that we're not here about blind about blind ideology. We're here to actually make practical decisions so that we can provide that balance between a transition towards renewables, but one that does not uh, ruin our economic base in the process. So, Sebastian, you've been quiet for a while mm-hmm. over in Perth. What does SA Best have planned? So, what? So, Xenophon's essentially threatened to hold the government hostage. 
So what may happen, although the polls are making it look less likely, is that Nick Xenophon might hold the balance of power. That means that when he wants, he can call another election because without his support, the government won't be the government. They won't have a majority in the lower house. Now, what his threat is, is that if he's holding the balance of power and if electricity prices do not drop by 20% in two years, he will call another election. Um, well, which is... I mean, I kind of hope it does happen because at least that means that uh, we'll have a season two of Heaps Good Politics a bit That'd earlier than expected. <laughs> maybe Nick Xenophon's a fan. And we'll know... <laughs> And maybe he is a fan, and at least then we'll know how to do that. <laughs> so it will be more efficient. Seb, well. my, I know, I'm glad you asked for my thoughts on this. <laughs> um, look, in my mind, it's, it's. Sorry, who's talking? It's a little bit like saying if we don't, if the government doesn't, you know, end homelessness or give everyone a free car in, in two years, we're going to crack the shits. Because um, unless, I think, unless you've got a policy <laughs> that's actually going to help something happen. It's a bit of a strange concept to just, you know, hold a government ransom like and that. That's, I just think that that's been a bit of a criticism of Xenophon's team is that they haven't been very clear about what they want their energy policy to be and that they've made this announcement that they want to see the prices drop and, and obviously that's something that we want to hear because electricity prices are too high. But um, we don't really know how he wants that to happen and I guess uh, if he's not going to be making the, a majority government that's maybe not an issue for him mm. but it's certainly something that we'd want to hear about yeah and i guess the other thing the other announcement um from sa best that has been really positive is that they've um lended their support to the establishment of essentially a state-owned energy retailer um, and the idea behind this is that it is primarily for low-income earners in south australia and um, will help to bring pa- uh, power prices down for those um specific people uh, it is supported by solar citizens and it does sound like a very good policy but um, unfortunately that's about the extent of what we've seen from him so far um, so there's also been the point made that south australia for its differences between left and right um, with this election it seems that most south australians are actually quite on board with our renewable energy plan and our future so unlike in other states where, you know, it's left versus right, coal versus renewables. Um, in South Australia, we're actually quite lucky that everyone seems to be on board with it and it's just a matter of how we move forward with renewables, what's the best approach. So I think that's an interesting and, and for young people, well, for all people really, probably a, a nice uplifting bipartisan kind of support. Yeah, that's right. Um, this is what Dan Spencer had to say about the differences between Labor and Liberal policies, but also the bipartisan support for renewable energy and how encouraging that is. The Liberals are focused on storing the renewable energy we already have rather than necessarily funding and supporting new renewable projects to to come online, whereas Labor are probably... um, They've invested in storage, but they're also, um, in the last few weeks, they've been backing new renewable generation projects as well. So there are some differences, but overall I think it is a positive that we've actually got both major parties um, who have got relatively positive policies around renewable energy. Now, we can't really talk about South Australia, uh, South Australia's energy and the environment without just briefly touching on um, our water problems. So um, one really hot topic recently is the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Um, Now, simply, this is a coordinated plan for water management um, for the eastern states and South Australia. It basically specifies the amount of water that is for environmental protection and the amount of water that is for agriculture. 
um, there, there was a big sort of scandal, I think uh, by Four Corners or, or one of those other programs, um, essentially saying that uh, we were losing out in South Australia because more water was being taken out upstream. And as a result, Nick Xenophon and, and SA Best, as well as Labor and the Greens, have been very strong on um, uh, threatening to pull out of this agreement and sort of, um, you know, really fighting for something different. Um, whereas the Liberal Party have taken a different approach that, you know, the idea is that we need a seat at the table in order to negotiate, so we have to stay in this agreement. Here's Ian Hunter talking a little bit more about what the Murray-Darling Basin plan is and the issues associated with it. Look, it's a very long and complicated history going back to Federation, really. Uh, And the River Murray was a key stumbling block for the colonies coming together and forming the Commonwealth. And they extracted probably a very bad deal for us into the future because what they insisted on was the states would keep control of the Murray and not the Commonwealth. And I think that was the fundamental bad mistake. And what that essentially meant was upstream states could do what they liked with the river. We ended up in a position with a millennium drought and we ran out of water. But out of that drought, we, we managed to collar the other states and beat them into submission and get them to agree to a compromise. And it was a compromise, it wasn't the ideal outcome of returning real water to the Murray, giving up water licences and changing their practices. And now we've found uh, Victoria has now announced they have no intention of delivering the full plan. They only want to deliver up to that point where Victoria gets the benefit with no intention of delivering the 450 gigs of upwater, which is water for the environment. South Australia's got wind of this and said, well, hang on, guys, we're not going to deliver on the bit that you want unless you promise to deliver on the bit that we want, and we've come to blows. So South Australia, again, as we did back in Federation and as we did 10 years ago back in the drought, are now at the point of being the only one standing up for our river uh, and getting the full delivery of the basin plan. And we'll go from energy to... We're going to change tax now and talk about the economy and and employment in South Australia. Certainly not an area of expertise for us, we must say, Uh, but we've done our best. Because um, not only are we not economists, but we don't have full-time jobs. I literally have no money. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, money is not our expertise, we must, it must be said, but we're going to sort of just give you a bit of a rundown of, of what the situation is and, and a little bit about what the promises that the different parties have made. So I guess in order to consider South Australia's economy, we need to know a little bit about the state of it. Um, and we're not experts, but there are some indicators that we can go, go off. What are those, Roger? Yes, sure. So I guess South Australia has a bit of a reputation for being like maybe one of the less performing states in the country and and not having the strongest economy. But really, uh, if we look at some of the figures, I mean, the the gross state product, which is sort of like the state equivalent of a GDP, uh, looking at that last year, it did grow about 2.2%, which is definitely an improvement in terms of over the last five years, which was it's at around 1%. And it is roughly in line with... um, the nation's GDP growth in general. So we're sort of tracking okay in that regard. Throughout 2017, we, we did have a bit of strengthening of the economy. Uh, there was a bit of recovery in the investment in business and and uh, a lift in public infrastructure. Um, so, so it's not all doom and gloom in that regard. Um, Roger, one of the other figures that people often talk about is the unemployment number or the unemployment figure. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, employment and unemployment are important things to look at because it's an indicator of the state's economy and how it's doing in general and also uh, relevant to 
individuals and, and families and you know obviously you need a job to make a living so look at at employment and unemployment in in the state it's it's actually managed to stay mostly stable and that's that's quite uh notable because as a state we did uh, undergo the closure of holden which was a big jobs producer in the state so that's something that jay weatherall is definitely very proud of in terms of being able to sort of weather that storm and despite the massive loss of jobs there being able to find jobs elsewhere so this is what he had to say about it well investing in creating jobs i mean we've been facing one of the most massive set of challenges that uh, any state government's faced you know the closure of holdings the you know the backwash of the global financial crisis you know commodity prices olympic dam not going ahead and you know it was there were some really dark days um and Despite all of that, in the last two years, we've created uh, 20,400 jobs, over and above all the jobs we've lost. It's an extraordinary achievement. And and certainly there have been successes in that front. Last year, um, back in my old hometown of Wyala, they they managed to keep the steelworks open there, which was a a big issue for them, is that the, the steelworks had gone into foreclosure and they were looking at losing a thing that basically provided a huge proportion of the jobs in that town and were really worried about what would happen to the town if that closed, and they managed to keep that open, thankfully. And, and the other big uh, jobs boon was uh, the federal government uh, investing in submarines to be built in um, in the state, which uh, was a federal government decision, but uh, Jay Weatherall did also lobby very hard for as well. So that's encouraging. I guess on the flip side, though, um, the Liberal Party are pointing to uh, South Australia's export market as a as a real problem. Um, so when when you compare South Australia's exports of just 0.8 percent to the country's average of 5.5 percent, it is a really massive discrepancy. And this is uh, Shadow Treasurer Rob Lucas from the Liberal Party talking a little bit about the state of the economy. You've only got to look at the fact that over the last four to five years. Our state's economic growth has been less than the national economic growth in Australia to know that there must be something different in South Australia, there must be something wrong in South Australia if uh, we are not growing as a state economy at the same rate as the rest of the country and our jobs growth. And so whilst it's correct to say that the jobs have grown here in recent months faster than uh, the last couple of years, the reality is we're still growing at around about half the jobs growth rate of the other states, in particular the rest of the nation, to export and to trade. Um, because if they can sell more of their goods wherever they sell them, that's going to be good in terms of jobs growth in South Australia. So, so with all that in mind, if um, you know we've, we've got some problems and we've got some numbers to go on, um, I guess we should talk about the industries and employment in South Australia. So it's probably pretty clear to everyone that manufacturing in South, in South Australia, but Australia more broadly, is dying out. Um, and this leaves a group behind, um, which are largely male um, and, and often you know, quite a bit older, which means it is going to be a tricky transition period. So, so whilst manufacturing is getting harder and harder in, in Australia because of uh, high labour costs and the relatively high Australian dollar, Nigel McBride from Business SA does think that uh, that manufacturing as we know it might be gone, but there might be a bit of hope for the future of South Australia's manufacturing. First, first of all, manufacturing, the old-style heavy labour manufacturing, yes, is dead, but that is driving us now into high-tech, advanced manufacturing, 
Uh, that's very much anchored with our defence sector. I mean, $80 billion over the next 50 years is very, very real. And so, so much of our advanced manufacturing sector will come out of that, def the broad defence sector, which is very technology-driven. You see that at Mawson Lakes, and we'll see it all over the place. So, that's a bright spot. So, it's different kinds of manufacturing. It's, it's where we use our IP and very high-end. Uh, okay, so... I guess some of the other industries that might provide jobs in the future, uh, certainly the service industry is growing, um, although unfortunately that often leads to part-time and casual employment. Um, but healthcare and the caring industry are, are actually growing massively. And this is one that I think sometimes people forget. So um, here's Ross Womersley from SACOS again, talking about the future of that industry. We know in the next 10 years in South Australia, one of the areas of the workforce that is going to expand enormously is in the personal care domain. So initiatives like the NDIS and um, consumer-directed aged care are going to result in something like 23% of the new jobs in South Australia. So we need to be helping kids who are thinking about careers to be thinking about that's a possible career. And as we talked about earlier, renewable energy is one of the biggest things that South Australia has got going for it at the moment. And I think we can certainly expect to see um, some jobs arising in that area. Yeah, I think that's what, what uh, the government wants to try to push is that if we try to make ourselves a leader in, in renewable energy, then that will bring jobs and, and investment in the state as well. So it's sort of a, trying to be a bit of a win-win in yeah. terms of cheaper, more renewable and good for the economy. And Elon Musk. And Elon Musk. Maybe <laughs> he'll, get Elon. A he'll get a job, yeah. finally. I mean, I... Um, so, Seb, the government has been pumping a bucket load of money into infrastructure development. I think anyone who lives in the city or, or in the suburbs would know that, you know, there's roadworks everywhere. There's constantly things being built. Mm, mm. Now, is this just a bit of patching up the leaking bucket or is this actually a good way to invest in our economy? Well, it's kind of both. Um, so what's good about it is first, when we spend money on infrastructure, we get jobs because people are required to build and maintain the infrastructure. Um, but more importantly, what it does is it stimulates investment um, in whatever's being built. So the most obvious example would be the new Royal Adelaide Hospital, um, which I think came up to $3.1 billion or around that. What that did is that prompted the university sector to put a lot of money into research um, and educational buildings around it. So the idea is um, we've got... Uh, the largest biomedical precinct in the Southern Hemisphere being constructed at the moment. So outside of NRA, we've also obviously had SAMRI 1 preceding that. They're looking at doing SAMRI 2 now. But the universities of Adelaide and South Australia also built uh, huge facilities nearby. And so that just kind of creates this cycle of investment and jobs growth. So I guess one of the issues with infrastructure is that these buildings come to an end and they get built. And um, that's what we're starting to see now with the new RA and, and the uh, OBAM being completed as well, is that a lot of these projects that have been going on for a while are now coming to an end and, and the jobs that they provided are also coming to an end. So, so when we spoke to Ross Womersley um, about infrastructure, he did point out that there is a, something called the, a jobs pipeline that can come up with infrastructure spending. Well, all of that infrastructure stuff does create jobs. So the work in infrastructure does have um, jobs available. 
particularly through the building phase. The, the big challenge is what happens after the building stops. And I think the industry talks about this in terms of the pipeline and the pipeline you know, reaching an end and having nowhere to go and suddenly all the jobs stop. So for as long as we can keep building, then probably a very fine thing. And I suppose the other thing to note is that the Wetherill government aren't just ending infrastructure uh, where it is. Um, so what they're proposing from here is they're looking at redeveloping South Road. And they also have been investing in redoing a lot of the tram lines that were ripped up in the 50s. And those are tram lines going up through Norwood and through North Adelaide. I guess one other point to make about infrastructure is a quote we had in, I think, episode one about governments are remembered uh, for what they build in a lot of ways. Uh, so, you know, in the state leaders debate they had the other day, which was on the bank of the Torrens, uh, Wetherill turned around and pointed to the, uh, the Adelaide Oval and some of the other things around and just made the point that, you know, that they built it. And because people can associate those infrastructure with the certain government, they, they're kind of a good vote drawing card in a lot of ways. Uh, so we're not surprised to hear that. So moving on from in infrastructure, um, when we talked about the employment figures before, it sounded pretty happy, Roger, mm -hmm. but there's a bit of a dark side to it all. Tell me about underemployment. Yeah, sure. So, so we, the current unemployment rate is about 6%, which is pretty much around the level of the national average, a little bit higher, but like we said before, encouraging given the, uh, the loss of the Holden and everything like that. But the thing about the unemployment figures is that you're considered employed if you work for one hour a week. So for most people, they need a bit more than that. And underemployment is becoming more of an issue all around the country as jobs change. And Ross Womersley from SACOS says that this is a hidden issue that, that needs to be addressed a bit more. Remember to be considered employed in this country under the, the stats, the unemployment figures that you, you see. You only have to be working an hour a week. So anyone that's working an hour a week or more won't be counted as being unemployed in, in Australia today in those ABS kind of counts. So in that context, it means that there's a lot of people who might be working from anywhere between 1 to 40 hours. Um, and what we do know is that there is a substantial increase in the numbers of people who are working only part-time. And sometimes in that context, they're not working enough to actually earn a, earn a living wage, if you like. So that is a new newly developing and it has been increasing we notice over the the last few years particularly in south australia but it's also consistent across the the country and that's something that certainly uh shadow treasurer rob lucas seems to think is a big problem and, and something that south australia in particular has to worry about when you look at the underemployment rate in south australia i think there are a number of bodies which have reported that our underemployment figures are significantly higher than most of the other states so the 6%-ish uh, unemployment figure is, uh, is misleading to the degree it doesn't measure the extent of the underemployment. There are a number of commentators who are saying that the problem on the numbers of people who are underemployed, that is they do desperately want to work more hours, are significantly higher now than they might have been 20 years ago. I think why that is is sadly um, the sort of policies that are being adopted in South Australia are not encouraging in particular small businesses to grow. 
And the Liberals do like to point out that as of last year, there are, are 10,000 fewer full-time jobs in South Australia than there were in 2010. It can yeah. get really confusing with all these statistics and it's hard to know what's up to date. And, yeah. But we have done our best here to, to give you some numbers to go on. Yeah. But do your own reading is my message. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about employment, South Australia is a little bit different from other places in the world. There, it's Small business and medium-sized business plays a massive role in employing South Australians. Here's Nigel. So just really broad terms, 150,000 businesses in South Australia, you know, outside of the government sector. About 100, just a little under 100,000 of those people don't employ anybody. So they'd be sole practitioners. Of the 50,000 employers that are left, about 46,000 of them employ less than 20 people, and typically between 5 and 15. Uh, And so if you go to the other end of the spectrum, last time I looked, less than 200 private sector or non-government sector employers employed more than 200 people. So we, we have put the S in SME in South Australia. Uh, when he says SME, he's, <laughs> he's, uh, we weren't familiar with that, but it means small and medium enterprises. Yeah, SME. SME. Let's Google that when we get home. But uh, yeah, I guess his point is we're not Sydney and Melbourne. We don't have huge corporations uh, in our CBD. We're, we're mostly uh, funded and, and run by small and medium enterprises. You mean SMEs? SMEs. Great. Rob Lucas, the shadow treasurer, was extremely supportive of small businesses. So here's what he had to say. Well, I think what we have to do first is recognise our small businesses are the engine room for jobs and economic growth in South Australia. And we have to develop policy which reduce the cost of doing business in South Australia um, so that our businesses are nationally and internationally competitive. Our view is that after 16 years, we've actually got a government which is led by a Premier who proudly says he doesn't believe in the free enterprise system. He refers to small businesses as members of the employer class And we don't think that's the way to uh, approach a job and economic growth policy in South Australia. Although Rob Lucas uh, states that Jay Wetherill is quite anti-business, Jay Wetherill kind of thinks of himself the opposite way. But in terms of uh, our business credentials, um, we're a pro-business government. We we partner with the, the private sector, with the government sector, to create jobs and opportunities. And... I mean, I'm one of the few people in Parliament that actually started their own small business. I set up a law firm uh, back in 1995, and I, I've got to say, it's probably the hardest couple of years of my life. Having said that, we've, if you actually look at the, the amount of um, relief that we've given to small businesses in South Australia, we have um, massively reduced uh, the payroll tax bill for small businesses. We've got rid of every business transaction tax, so stamp duty, for everyone um, has been abolished for really commercial transactions. And they're the worst taxes, the, the taxes that punish um, economic activity. Okay, so if we want our small businesses to thrive, given they're the backbone of the economy, how do we go about helping? Most people would say that the answer is to lower taxes, and, and that's certainly been one of the hot topics of this election campaign. And, and the specific tax that everyone's talking about is the payroll tax. So the payroll is essentially the amount of money that leaves a business in order to pay its employees. In South Australia currently, any company that that pays its employees in total more than $600,000 a year has to pay tax. 
And that's actually the lowest threshold in the country. That means that businesses who are, who are small, and, and that's sort of the size of a small company, are paying tax purely on, on the wages that they're paying their employees. Last year, the rates uh, were dropped from 5% to 2.5% for companies paying less than $1 million in, in their payroll. But it's a bit of a point of contention because it does make it really hard for small business. Yeah, like you said, it's still the lowest in the, in the country. So most other um, states start their payroll tax at around the $1 million mark. Some, uh, there's obviously some variation. And the Liberals sort of want to, because we're a, a small and medium business state, they want to sort of make things a little bit easier for those smaller businesses. And they've, they've pledged to double the um, tax-free threshold for payroll tax to $1.5 million. Um, so that means that companies, if they're paying their employees less than 1.5 million total a year, they won't have to pay any tax on, on those um, payments. Um, and the Liberals say that hopefully that will ease the pressure on small businesses. Obviously, though, it will mean less money for the government. Liberals seem to like a smaller government, so that's fine with them. The other aspect that the Liberals are proposing is to cut the emergency services levy by 50%. This was increased by Labor in 2014. So just to clarify, the emergency services levy is basically an add-on to all existing taxes in South Australia. So businesses and, and households all pay this extra bit of money to contribute to the emergency, the provision of emergency services in South Australia. And we asked Stephen Knoll about this. Here's him talking about it now. When the state government, the Labor government, increased uh, the emergency services levy bills by $90 million, that extra money... Not one cent of it went into uh, increased emergency services funding. Not one cent. It all went into general revenue because it displaced remissions that were being provided uh, by state government. So in reversing that decision, what we're going to do is we're going to take that money from general revenue and help use it to reduce people's ESL bills. And SA Best also supports this pledge to, to lower the emergency services levy. But outside of simply taxing people differently and businesses differently. Another way to help small business grow is to look at investing in them. And that's one thing that the Labor government has planned to do. So what they're looking at is small grants for small and medium businesses to help them start off, grow and employ other people. And some of these include the Future Jobs Fund, the Job Accelerator Grants, SA Venture Capital Fund and the SA Early Commercialisation Fund. Now, to me, Seb, those are just a bunch of words, but I think essentially what, what they do is, is give money to businesses, but also people who are wanting to start businesses um, to encourage investment in yeah. South Australia. And they, they all have different sort of... Um, criteria, different amounts of criteria, money, exactly. things like that. So maybe yeah. we should apply yeah, for one of, of those for, uh, for our podcast. I mean, two, I yeah. think we could have a lot of employees. We yeah. could have someone on snacks. <laughs> someone Definitely someone on... to do the editing. We could, we could move like from. <laughs> oh, we could even move path. to Adobe. We could get a subscription. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is something that Labor have actually done for the, for a while, and they they point to these uh, methods as how they were able to bring back everyone's favourite crunchy ripoff, Violet Crumble, uh, back to back to South Seriously, Australia. Seriously, Violet Crumble's so shit anyway. I don't know why uh, we bothered. No, it's not because it brought jobs to South Australia. <laughs> so, uh, we're in like, favour of here at Hitch Politics. Cadbury or, you know, Fredo that, or Birdie Beetle. Where the fuck is Birdie Beetle even produced? <laughs> I think South Australia. I don't know. Anyway. These are not the questions that we're here to answer. Sorry. But, uh, but yeah, this is, this is what Jay Weatherall had to say about the... Uh, their plan to to help small businesses in this method. 
I mean, the, this is a big, you know, point of distinction between us and our, our opponents. Um, we we believe in in investing, so we created a future jobs fund, two hundred million dollars to invest with businesses to create jobs. Massive investment in infrastructure. Uh, we have um, introduced um, a thing called a jobs accelerator grant for people that want to take on new workers, including apprentices. I don't think you can separate out this this idea, you know private good, public bad, you know, I think in a modern economy, modern mixed economy, there's an inextricable link. Now, the Liberals are a little bit less excited about this strategy and they see it as, you know, sort of picking winners. Here's Rob Lucas and his thoughts about this strategy. Trying to pick winners and give money, uh, give money for example, taxpayers funding to a small number of bigger companies so you can make the jobs announcement. We saw, you know, recent announcements in relation to money going to the people who are now going to uh, produce violet crumbles in South Australia. We saw a number of those sorts of announcements which worked out at about $50,000 a job. Now, this was one of my favourite headlines recently in, <laughs> in the advertiser, I believe. Um, our, one of our guests on the show actually wrote an article about um, South Australia's morbidly obese public sector. Oh. Requiring um, bariatric and, surgery to reduce it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's what he's asking for. So essentially, um, the, the problem that Nigel McBride, um, among others, have identified is that in South Australia, our public sector, so people employed by the government, um, is, is proportionately quite large. So in South Australia, it employs 15%. 15.7% of, of all of our full-time workers, whereas the national average is, is only 12.4%. And this is a bit of a hard thing to unpack. It is a, a mammoth of a problem. So is it so big because you, you know we need more services? Is it so big because it's inefficient? It is actually quite hard to tell. Here's Nigel McBride um, talking about why he wants to trim the fat. I think I'd start with the fact that we need a uh, we need a very efficient um, and effective public service, public sector. But if you speak to people within the public sector, we have, according to them, thousands of people in areas like education and health who uh, are just floating around. This is massive bureaucracy that floats around in there. Um, you go agency by agency, and you actually, in a transparent situation, benchmarking with other states that are similar. And so, so if those states can cope at that level, what's their structure like? How could we embrace it over a period of time? So on the other hand, Premier Jay Weatherall, he, he says when we asked him about it that he's quite proud of the size of the, the public sector and he, he sees it as a badge of honour almost. And this is what he had to say. Um, well, we believe in public services. We, we make no apologies for having more doctors per capita, more nurses, um, more police than um, I think almost every other state and territory. It's a question of how committed you are to public services. Well, we don't aspire to have the largest public sector in the, in the nation. We want the best public sector. Meanwhile, Rob Lucas thinks we do need to reduce it, mainly to look at efficiency and effectiveness of the public sector. Well, I think um, the size is not the issue from our viewpoint. From our viewpoint, the issue is the efficiency and effectiveness of it. If you can actually deliver a Rolls-Royce product or a gold-plated product in terms of the service and uh, do that with a certain size of the public sector, that's terrific. Sadly, what we're seeing, for example, in the education area, where the government boasts of spending more money than other states or whatever it might be, um, but our NAPLAN results indicate that we're either bottom or second bottom 
in most of the NAPLAN results. So it's, an, it's a question of efficient, efficiency and effectiveness. Look, I'm happy if it grows because, I mean, that's who is going to be employing us in, in a few years. So <laughs> they could hire us Just multiple kidding. times. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, I'll be a private psychiatrist. $500 an hour. Okay, so that was a bit of a long episode. I hope you're all still with us. And if yeah, you're not, still there. Well, Hello. Thanks for making it this far. I'm sure you're enjoying I'm Sarah sure Koenig on cereal or something. Yeah. Um, so, Roger, what have yeah. we covered? What have you learned? Oh, Look, we've covered a lot. We've covered many bases today. We talked about energy. We talked about renewables and, and why we're paying so much for, for energy. We also apples talk- and oranges, right? Oh, of course, yeah. And Elon. And um, apples and Elon. We also talked about the economy, whether it's really as bad as we probably think it is or implicitly believe it is because we don't like to think too highly of ourselves in South Australia, it seems. And also about, about jobs and what the state of that is. Uh, so definitely lots of uh, areas covered today. I hope hope we answered some of your questions. And uh, overall, this is this will be our last sort of podcast before the election, unless by some miracle Nick Zanifon comes in and and wants to do an interview with us. Nick, we're we're waiting. We're we're willing. We've got a microphone ready. I mean, that's um, assuming we get it out before March seventeenth. Yeah, 17th, yeah exactly. <laughs> so so thanks very much for listening to us. The series uh, we had a lot of fun. Had some laughs, had some tears. <laughs> Mainly tears. <laughs> I'm still tearing up. I, I suppose the other people to thank is uh, the student radio team. They've given us equipment. They've given mm-hmm. us uh, help in the editing process. They've done the distribution for us. Um, so it's been really good to have them on board. Yeah. And also thank you very much to our guests uh, for taking the time to be interviewed by us. Um, they took time out of their busy days, so, so we definitely appreciate that. But probably what you all want to know is what will we be doing next? <laughs> I'm sure that. <laughs> I'd like now, to know I that know, as well, Maud. I know when the first series of House of Cards finished, I was desperate to know what was going to happen next. And I'm pleased to know that. Um, and and that guy's Seth makes a perfect Kevin Spacey. <laughs> Kevin Spacey is gone and <laughs> Seth will be gone next time. <laughs> So, look, we're not sure yet. We've had a reasonably good response to this this series, which we're actually quite happy with. So, um, we might be doing some other random things during this year. So, yeah. if you see our beautiful little faces appear on your newsfeed <laughs> again. Definitely subscribe. Um, and, yeah, depending on how March 17th goes, we might have some interesting mm. updates that we might talk a bit about. Maybe you'll hear us unpack the more morbidly obese <laughs> and if uh, And if there's anything you want to hear, feel free to message Student Radio or one of us and we'll have a think about doing a podcast yeah. on it. One of, one of our um, many employees will get that. <laughs> 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 um, All right, on that note, um, great to great to chat. Yeah. See, see you later. See ya. Good chat. Good <laughs> Bye. 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 Heaps good politics. Come on and put us to the test. Make a change in the nick of time. Forget the rest. Heaps good politics.